11. Faces out of the forts. The Swamp Fox was to pave the way for the reconquest of the South by the brave General Green. No long time elapsed before Marion increased his disreputable score to a brigade of more respectable proportions, with which he struck such quick and telling blows from all sides on the British and Tories that no nest of hornets could have more dismayed a marauding party of boys. The swamps of the Petey were his headquarters. In their interminable and thicket-hidden depths he found hiding places in abundance, and from them he made rapid darts, north, south, east, and west, making his presence felt wherever he appeared, and flying back to shelter before his pursuers could overtake him. His corps was constantly changing, now swelling, now shrinking, now little larger than his original ragged score, now grown to a company of a hundred or more in dimensions. It was always small. The swamps could not furnish shelter and food for any large body of men. Marion's headquarters were at Snows Island, at the point where Lynch's Creek joins the Petey River. This was a region of high river swamp, thickly forested, and abundantly supplied with game. The camp was on dry land, but around it spread broad reaches of wet thicket and cane brake, whose paths were known only to the partisans, and their secrets sedulously preserved. As regards the mode of life here of Marion and his men, there is an anecdote which will picture it better than pages of description. A young British officer was sent from Georgetown to treat with Marion for an exchange of prisoners. The Swamp Fox fully approved of the interview, being ready enough to rid himself of his captives, who were a burden on his hands, but he was too shrewd to allay bare the ways that led to his camp. The officer was blindfolded, and led by devious paths through canebrake, thicket, and forest to the hidden camp. On the removal of the bandage from his eyes he looked about him with admiration and surprise. He found himself in a scene worthy of Robin Hood's woodland band. Above him spread the boughs of magnificent trees, laden with drooping moss, and hardly letting a ray of sunlight through their crowding foliage. Around him rose their massive trunks, like the columns of some vast cathedral. On the grassy or moss-clad ground sat or lay groups of hardy-looking men, no two of them dressed alike and with none of the neat appearance of uniformed soldiers, more remote were their horses, cropping the short herbage in equine contentment. It looked like a camp of forest outlaws, jovial tenants of the merry greenwood. The surprise of the officer was not lessened when his eyes fell on Marion, whom he had never seen before. It may be that he expected to gaze on a burly giant. As it was, he could scarcely believe that this diminutive, quiet-looking man, and this handful of ill-dressed and lounging followers, were the celebrated band who had thrown the whole British power in the South into alarm. Marion addressed him, and a conference ensued in which their business was quickly arranged to their mutual satisfaction. And now, my dear sir, said Marion, I should be glad to have you dine with me. You have fasted during your journey, and will be the better for a woodland repast. With pleasure, replied the officer. It will be a new and pleasant experience. He looked around him. Where was the dining room? Where? at least, the table, on which their midday repast was to be spread, where were the dishes and the other paraphernalia which civilization demands as the essentials of a modern dinner, where, his eyes found no answer to this mental question, Marion looked at him with a smile, we dine here in simple style, Captain, he remarked, pray be seated, he took his seat on a mossy log, and plonked to an opposite one for the officer, a minute or two afterwards the camp purveyor made his appearance, bearing a large piece of bark, on which smoked some roasted sweet potatoes. They came from a fire of brushwood blazing at a distance. Help yourself, Captain, said Marion, 
taking a swollen and brown-coated potato from the impromptu platter, breaking it in half, and beginning to eat with a forest appetite. The officer looked at the vines and at his host with eyes of wonder. Surely, General, he exclaimed, this cannot be your ordinary fare. Indeed it island, said Marion, and we are fortunate, on this occasion, having company to entertain, to have more than our usual allowance. The officer had little more to say. He helped himself to the rural vines, which he ate with thought for salt. On returning to Georgetown he gave in his report, and then tendered his commission to his superior officer, saying that a people who could fight on routes for fair could not be, and ought not to be, subdued, and that he, for one, would not serve against them. Of the exploits of Marion we can but speak briefly, they were too many to be given in detail. His blows were so sharply dealt, in such quick succession, and at such remote points, that his foes were puzzled, and could hardly believe that a single band was giving them all this trouble. Their annoyance culminated in their sending one of their best cavalry leaders, Colonel Wemyss, to surprise and crush the swamp fox. Then far from his hiding place, Wemyss got on Marion's trail, and pursued him with impetuous haste. But the wary patriot was not to be easily surprised, nor would he fight where he had no chance to win. Northward he swiftly made his way, through swamps and across deep streams, into North Carolina. Wemyss lost his trail, found it lost it again, and finally, discouraged and revengeful, turned back and desolate the country from which he had driven its active defender, and which was looked on as the hotbed of rebellion. Marion, who had but sixty men in his band, halted the moment pursuit ceased, sent out scouts for information, and in a very short time was back in the desolate district. The people rushed, with horse and rifle, to his ranks. Swiftly he sped to the Black Mingo, below Georgetown and here fell at midnight on a large body of Tories, with such vigor and success that the foe were almost annihilated, while Marion lost but a single man, the devoted band now had a short period of rest, the British being discouraged and depressed, then Tarleton, the celebrated hard-riding marauder, took upon himself the difficult task of crushing the swamp fox, he scoured the country, spreading ruin as he went, but all his skill and impetuosity were useless in the effort to overtake Marion, the Patriot leader was not even to be driven from his chosen region of operations, and he managed to give his pursuer some unwelcome reminders of his presence. At times Tarleton would be within a few miles of him, and full of hope of overtaking him before the next day's dawn. But, while he was thus lulled to security, Marion would be watching him from the shadows of some dark morass, and at midnight the British rear or flank would feel the sharp bite of the swamp fox's teeth. In the end, Tarleton withdrew discomfited from the pursuit, with more hard words against this fellow, who would not fight like a gentleman or a Christian, than he had ever been able to give him hard blows. Tarleton withdrawn, Marion resumed all his old activity, his audacity reaching the extent of making an attack on the British garrison at Georgetown. This was performed in conjunction with Major Lee, who had been sent by General Green to Marion's aid. Lee had no little trouble to find him. The active partisan was so constantly moving about, now in deep swamps, now far from his lurking places, that friend and foe alike were puzzled to trace his movements. They met at last, however, and made a midnight attack on Georgetown, and successful, as it proved, yet sufficient to redouble the alarm of the enemy. In the spring of 1781 we find Colonel Watson, with a force of 500 men, engaged in the difficult task of crushing Marion. He found him and like the predecessors, but, 
as it proved, to his own cost. Marion was now at Snow's Island, whence he emerged to strike a quick succession of heavy blows at such different points that he appeared to be ubiquitous. His force met that of Watson unexpectedly, and a fight ensued. Watson had the advantage of field pieces, and Marion was obliged to fall back, reaching a bridge over the Black River. He checked his pursuers with telling volleys long enough to burn the bridge. Then a peculiar contest took place. The two forces marched down the stream, one on each side, for ten miles, skirmishing across the water all the way. Darkness ended the fight. The two camps were pitched near together. For ten days Watson remained there, not able to get at Marion, and so annoyed by the constant raids of his active foe that in the end he made a midnight flight to escape destruction in detail. Marion pursued and did him no small damage in the flight. Watson's only solace was the remark, already quoted, that his troublesome foe would not fight like a gentleman or a Christian. Major Lee tells an amusing story of an incident that happened to himself. On his march in search of Marion, he had encamped for the night on Drowning Creek, a branch of the Petey. As morning approached, word was brought to the officer of the day that noises were heard in front of the pickets, in the direction of the creek. They seemed like the stealthy movements of men. Now a sentinel fired. The bugle sounded for the horse patrols to come in and the whole force was quickly got ready for the coming enemy. But no enemy appeared. Soon after another sentinel fired. And word came that an unseen foe was moving in the swamp. The troops faced in this direction. And waited anxiously for the coming of dawn. Suddenly the line of sentinels in their rear fire in succession. The enemy had undoubtedly gained the road behind them and were marching on them from that direction. The line again faced round. Lee went along it, telling his men that there was nothing left but to fight, and bidding them to sustain the high reputation which they had long since won. The cavalry were ordered not to pursue a flying force, for the country was well sweeped for concealment, and they might be tempted into an ambuscade. When day broke the whole column advanced with great caution. Infantry in front, baggage in center, cavalry in rear. Where was the foe? None appeared. The van officer carefully examined the road for an enemy's trail. To his surprise and amusement, he found only the tracks of a large pack of wolves. These animals had been attempting to pass the camp at point after point, turned from each point by the fire of the sentinels, and trying the line on all sides. Great merriment followed, in which pickets, patrols, and the officer of the day were made the butt of the ridicule of the whole force. We shall close with one interesting story in which Marion played the leading part, but which is distinguished by an example of womanly patriotism worthy of the highest praise. The mansion of Mrs. Rebecca Mott, a rich widow of South Carolina, had been taken possession of by the British authorities, she being obliged to take up her residence in a farmhouse on her lands. The large mansion was converted into a fort, and surrounded by a deep ditch and a high parapet, a garrison of 150 men under Captain McPherson, was stationed here, the place being renamed Fort Mott. The stronghold was attacked, in May, 1781, by Marion and Lee. Then in conjunction, Lee took position at the farmhouse, and posted his men on the declivity of the plain on which the fort stood. Marion cast up a mound, placed on it the six-pounder they had brought with them, and prepared to assail the parapet while Lee made his approaches. McPherson had no artillery. Their approaches were made by a trench from an adjacent ravine. In a few days they were near enough to be justified in demanding a surrender. McPherson refused. The same evening word reached the Americans that Lord Rodden was approaching, 
On the following night the light of his campfires could be seen on the neighboring hills of the Santee. The garrison saw them as well as the assailants, and were filled with renewed hope. What was to be done? The besiegers must succeed quickly or retreat. Lee was not long in devising an expedient. The mansion of Mrs. Mott was shingled and the shingles very dry. There had been no rain for several days, and the sun had poured its rays warmly upon them. They might be set on fire. Lee suggested this to Mrs. Mott, with much dread as to how she would receive it. Her acquiescence was so cheerful that his mind was relieved. The patriotic woman expressed herself as ready to make any sacrifice for her country. Lee told his plan to Marion, who warmly approved it. It was proposed to do the work by means of arrows carrying flaming combustibles. As it proved, however, the only bows and arrows they could find in the camp were very inferior articles. They will never do, said Mrs. Mott. I can provide you with much better. I had in the house an excellent bow and a bundle of arrows, which came from the East Indies. They are at your service. She hastened from the room, and quickly returned with the weapons, which she handed to Ali as cheerfully as though she looked for some special benefit to herself from their use. Word was sent to McPherson of what was intended, and that Rodden had not yet crossed the Santee. Immediate surrender would save many lives. The bold commandant still refused, at midday, from the shelter of the ditch. Nathan Savage, one of Marion's men, shot several flaming arrows at the roof. Two of them struck the dry shingles. Almost instantly these were in a flame. The fire crept along the roof. Soldiers were sent up to extinguish it. But a shot or two from the field piece drove them down. There was no longer hope for McPherson. He must surrender. Or have his men burned in the fort. Or decimated if they should leave it. He hung out the white flag of surrender. The firing ceased. The flames were extinguished. At one o'clock the garrison yielded themselves prisoners. An hour afterwards the victorious and the captive officers were seated at an ample repast at Mrs. Mott's table, presided over by that lady with as much urbanity and grace as though these guests were her especial friends. Since that day Mrs. Mott has been classed among the most patriotic heroines of the revolution. The silent perhaps, enough in prose, but the fame of Marion and his men has been fitly enshrined in poetry and it will not be amiss to quote a verse or two. In conclusion, from Bryant's stirring poem entitled, Song of Marion's Men, our band is few, but true and tried our leader frank and bold, the British soldier trembles when Marion's name is told, our fortress is the good greenwood, our tent the cypress tree, we know the forest round us, as seamen know the sea, we know its walls of thorny vines, its glades of reedy grass, its safe and silent islands within the dark morass. Well knows the fair and friendly moon the band that Marion leads, the glitter of their rifles, the scampering of their steeds, tease life to guide the fiery barb across the moonlit plain, tease life to feel the night wind that lifts his tossing mane, a moment in the British camp, a moment, and away back to the pathless forest before the peep of day, grave men there are by broad Santee, grave men with hoary hairs, their hearts are all with Marion, for Marion are their prayers and lovely ladies greet our band with kindliest welcoming, with smiles like those of summer, and tears like those of spring. For them we wear these trusty arms, and lay them down no more till we have driven the Britain forever from our shore. The fate of the Philadelphia. It was a mild evening on the Mediterranean. The wind light. The sea smooth. The temperature though the season was that of midwinter summer like in its geniality. Into the harbor of Tripoli slowly glided a small, two-masked vessel all her sails set and moderately well filled by the wind, yet moving with the tardiness of a very slow sailor, a broad day lay before her, 
its surface silvered by the young moon whose crescent glowed in the western sky. Far inward could be dimly seen the masts and hull of a large vessel, its furled sails white in the moonlight. Beyond it were visible distant lights, and a white luster as of minaret tops touched by the moonbeams. These were the lights and spires of Tripoli, a Moorish town then best known as a haunt and stronghold of the pirates of the Mediterranean. All was silence, all seemingly peace. The vessel the catch, to give it its nautical name moved onward with what seemed exasperating slowness, scarcely ruffling the polished waters of the bay. The hours passed on, the miles lagged tardily behind, the wind fell, the time crept towards midnight. The only life visible in the wide landscape was that of the gliding catch, but anyone who could have gained a bird's eye view of the vessel would have seen sufficient to excite his distrust of that innocent seeming craft. From the waterside only ten or twelve men could be seen, but on looking downward the decks would have been perceived to be crowded with men, lying down so as to be hidden behind the bulwarks and other objects upon the deck, and so thick that the sailors who were working the vessel had barely room to move. This appeared suspicious. Not less suspicious was the fact that the water behind the vessel was ruffled by dragging objects of various kinds, which seemed to have something to do with her slowness of motion. As the wind grew lighter, and the speed of the vessel fell until it was moving at barely a two knots rate. These objects were drawn in and proved to be buckets, spars, and other drags which had been towed astern to reduce the vessel's speed. Her tardiness of motion was evidently the work of design. It was now about ten o'clock. The moon hovered on the western horizon. Near its hour of setting, the wind was nearly east, and favorable to the vessel's course, but was growing lighter every moment. The speed of the catch diminished until it seemed almost to have come to a rest. It had now reached the eastern entrance to the bay, the passage here being narrowed by rocks on the one hand and a shoal on the other. Through this passage it stole onward like a ghost, for nearly an hour, all around being tranquil, nothing anywhere to arouse distrust. The craft seemed a coaster delayed by the light winds in making harbor. The gliding catch had now come so near to the large vessel in front that the latter had lost its dimness of outline and was much more plainly visible. It was evidently no Moorish craft, its large hull, its lofty masts, its tracery of spars and rigging being rather those of an English or American frigate than a product of Tripolitan dockyards. Its great bulk and sweeping spars arose in striking contrast to the low-decked vessels which could be seen here and there huddled about the inner sides of the harbor. A half-hour more passed. The catch was now close aboard the frigate-like craft steering directly towards it, despite the seeming security of the harbor, there were sentries posted on the frigate and officers moving about its deck, from one of these now came a loud hail in the Tripolitan tongue, what craft is that, the Mastico, from Malta, came the answer, in the same language, keep off, do you want to run afoul of us, we would like to ride beside you for the night, came the answer, we have lost our anchors in a gale, the conversation continued, in the Tripolitan language, as the catch crept slowly up, an officer of the frigate and the pilot of the smaller vessel being the spokesman, a number of Moorish sailors were looking with mild curiosity over the frigate's rails, without a moment's suspicion that anything was wrong, the moon still dimly lit up the waters of the bay, but not with light enough to make any object very distinct, as the catch came close a boat was lowered with a line, and was rowed towards the frigate, to whose four chains the end was made fast. At the same time the officer of the large vessel, willing to aid the seemingly disabled coaster, ordered some of his men to lower a boat and take a line from the stern to the catch. As the boat of the latter returned, it met the frigate's boat, took the line from the hands of its crew, 
and passated into the smaller vessel. The ketch was now fast to the frigate bow and stern. The lines were passated to the men lying on the deck, none of whom were visible from the frigate's rail, and were slowly passated from hand to hand by the men, the coaster thus being cautiously drawn closer to the obliging Moorish craft. All this took time. Foot by foot the ketch drew nearer, her motion being almost imperceptible. The Moors looked lazily over their bulwark, fancying that it was but the set of the current that was bringing the vessels together. But suddenly there was a change. The officer of the frigate had discovered that the ketch was still provided with anchors, despite the story that her anchors had been lost in a gale. What is this? He cried, sternly. You have your anchors. You have lied to me. Keep off. Cut those fast spear. A moment afterwards the cry of Americanus was raised in the ship, and a number of the night watch drew their knives and hastened fore and aft to cut the fasts. The crew of the Mastica or the Intrepid, to give it its proper name were still more alert. At the first signal of alarm, their cautious pull on the ropes was changed to a vigorous effort which sent the catch surging through the water to the side of the frigate, where she was instantly secured by grappling irons, hurled by strong hands. Up to this moment not a movement or whisper had betrayed the presence of the men crouched on the deck. The ten or twelve who were visible seemed to constitute the whole crew of the craft. But now there came a sudden change. The stirring cry of, Borders away! was raised in stentorian tones, and in an instant the deck of the intrepid seemed alive. The astonished moors gazed with startled eyes at a dense crowd of men who had appeared as suddenly as if they had come from the air. The order to board had been given by an officer who sprang at the same moment for the frigate's chain plates. Two active young men followed him, and in an instant the whole crew were at their heels, some boarding the frigate by the ports, others over the rail, swarming upon her deck like so many bees, while the moors fell back in panic fright. The surprise was perfect. The men on the frigate's deck ran to the starboard side as their assailants poured in on the larboard and constant plunges into the water told that they were hastily leaping overboard in their fright. Hardly a blow had been struck. The deck was cleared in almost a minute after the order to board. The only struggle took place below. But this lasted little longer. In less than ten minutes from the time of boarding all resistance was at an end, and the craft was an undisputed prize to the intrepid's crew. And now to learn the meaning of this midnight assault. The vessel which had been so skillfully captured was the frigate Philadelphia of the American Navy, which had fallen into the hands of the Tripolitans some time before. For years the Moorish powers of Africa had been preying upon the commerce of the Mediterranean, until the weaker nations of Europe were obliged to pay an annual tribute for the security of their commerce. The United States did the same for some time, but the thing grew so annoying that war was at length declared against Tripoli, the boldest of these piratical powers. In 1803 Commodore Pribley was sent with a fleet to the Mediterranean. He forced Morocco to respect American commerce, and then proceeded to Tripoli, outside whose harbor his fleet congregated, with a view of blockading the port. On October 31st Captain Bainbridge of the Philadelphia, while cruising about, saw a vessel inshore and to a windward, standing for Tripoli. Sail was made to cut her off. The chase continued for several hours, the league being kept constantly going to avoid danger of shoals. When about a league distant from Tripoli it became evident that the fugitive craft could not be overtaken, and the frigate wore round to haul off into deeper waters, but, to the alarm of the officers, they found the water in their front rapidly shoaling, it having quickly decreased in depth from eight to six and a half fathoms. A hasty effort was now made to aware the ship, but it was too late, the next instant she struck on a reef, 
with such force that she was lifted on it between five and six feet. This was an appalling accident. No other cruiser was near. The enemy was close at hand. Gunboats were visible near the town. The moment it was discovered that the frigate was in trouble these dogs of war would be out. Captain Bainbridge gave orders to alighten the ship with all speed. All but a few of her guns were thrown overboard. The anchors were cut from the bows. The water casks in the hold were started, and the water pumped out. All heavy articles were thrown overboard, and finally the foremast was cut away. But all proved in vain. The ship still lay immovable on the rocks. The gunboats of the enemy now surrounded her, and were growing bolder every minute. There was nothing for it but surrender. Resistance could only end in the death of all on board. But before hauling down his flag, Captain Bainbridge had the magazine drowned. Holes bored in the ship's bottom. The pumps choked, and every measure taken to ensure her sinking. Then the colors were lowered and the gunboats took possession. 315 prisoners being captured. The officers were well treated by the Basha of Tripoli, but an enormous ransom was demanded for them, and all signs of an inclination to peace disappeared. Captain Bainbridge's efforts to sink the Philadelphia proved ineffectual. During a high wind the prize was got off the reef. Her leaks stopped, and she taken in triumph to the city. Her guns, anchors, and other articles were raised from the reef. The ship was moored about a quarter of a mile from the Basha's castle, and her injuries repaired, it being the intention to fit her for sea as a Tripolitan cruiser. These were the events that preceded the daring attempt we have detailed. Lieutenant Stephen Decatur had volunteered to make an effort to destroy the vessel, with the aid of a recently captured catch, called the Mastico. This, renamed the Intrepid, man with a crew of 76 men, had entered the harbor on the evening of February 3, 1804. What followed, to the capture of the frigate, has been told. The succeeding events remain to be detailed. Doubtless Lieutenant Decatur would have attempted to carry off the prize had it been possible. His orders, however, were to destroy it, and the fact that there was not a sail bent or a yard crossed left him no alternative. The command was, therefore, at once given to pass up the combustibles from the pitch. There was no time to be lost. The swimming fugitives would quickly be in the town and the alarm given. Every moment now was of value, for the place where they were was commanded by the guns of the forts and of several armed vessels anchored at no great distance, and they might look for an assault the instant their character was determined with all haste. Then, officers and men went to work. They had been divided into squads, each with its own duty to perform, and they acted with the utmost promptitude and disciplined exactness. The men who descended with combustibles to the cockpit and after storerooms had need to haste, for fires were lighted over their heads before they were through with their task. So rapidly did the flames catch and spread that some of those on board had to make their escape from between decks by the forward ladders. The after part of the ship being already filled with smoke. In twenty minutes from the time the Americans had taken possession of the ship they were driven out of her by flames. So rapidly had they spread. The vessel had become so dry under those tropical suns that she burned like pine. By the time the party which had been engaged in the storerooms reached the deck. Most of the others were on board the Intrepid. They joined them. And the order to cast off was given. It was not an instant too soon for the daring party were just then in the most risky situation they had been in that night. The fire, in fact, had spread with such an expected rapidity that flames were already shooting from the portholes. The head fast was cast off, and the pitch fell astern, but the stern fast became jammed and the boom foul, while the ammunition of the party, covered only with a tarpaulin, 
was within easy reach of the increasing flames. There was no time to look for an axe, and the rope was severed with sword's blows, while a vigorous shove sent the intrepid clear of the frigate and free from the danger which had threatened her. As she swung clear, the flames reached the rigging, up which they shot in hissing lines, the ropes being saturated with tar which had oozed out through the heat of the sun. The intrepid did not depend on her sails alone for escape. She was provided with sweeps, and these were now got out and manned with haste. A few vigorous strokes sending the vessel safely away from the flaming frigate. This done, the crew, as with one impulse, dropped their oars and gave three rousing cheers for their signal victory. Their shouts of triumph appeared to arouse the moors from their lethargy. So rapid and unlooked for had been the affair, that the vessel was in full flame before the town and the harbor were awake to the situation. There were batteries on shore, and two corsairs and a galley were anchored at no great distance from the Philadelphia, and from these now the boom of cannon began, but their fire was too hasty and nervous to do much harm, and the men of the intrepid seized their sweeps again and bowled merrily down the harbor, their progress aided by a light breeze in their sails. The spectacle that followed is described as of a beauty that approached sublimity. The ship, aflame from hull to peak, presented a magnificent appearance. The entire bay was illuminated, and the flash and roar of cannon were constant. The guns of the Philadelphia going off as they became heated, and adding to the uproar, she lay so that one of her broadsides was directed towards the town, thus returning the enemy's fire, while the other sent its balls far out into the harbor. The most singular effect of the conflagration was on board the ship, for the flames, having run up the rigging and masts, collected under the tops, and fell over, giving the whole the appearance of glowing columns and fiery capitals. The intrepid moved on down the harbor, none the worse for the cannonballs.